0: Dr. Chloe Carweichel holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from Long Island University. Her private practice focuses on stress management, relationship issues, self-esteem, and coaching. She's also a former adjunct college professor, yoga instructor, and psychologist for the New York College of Podiatric Medicine, and the author of Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Chloe, welcome.
1: Thanks, Jason. It's great to be with you.
0: It's great to have you. So I, I loved your book and I loved the title. It's a good title, Nervous Energy. And look, I think we tend to think of nervous energy as, as bad, but it can be good.
1: It can absolutely be good.
0: So let's go there. Ta- let's talk through the, the the good and the bad of nervous energy, which we all experience, including myself.
1: Yes. So I called the book, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, because as a psychologist, I found that a lot of the people who were coming to my office would sometimes say, oh, Dr. Chloe, can you please help me learn how to get rid of my anxiety? And these would actually usually be pretty successful, driven people who you know, maybe had a little bit of a slightly anxious side that it actually helped them to a certain degree. It was that part of them that would kind of guide them to double check things and be prepared. And the healthy function of anxiety is actually to stimulate preparation behaviors. So I found myself constantly explaining to people, we don't want to get rid of your anxiety any more than we want to quote, like get rid of all your body fat. There's a healthy level of it that we're supposed to have that can be protective. We just need to learn how to use it properly.
0: How can we use it properly? And and when that nervous energy strikes or that anxiety strikes, what are some of the techniques to help us kind of fight through it and, and leverage it, if you will?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, it's going to depend on the nature of the anxiety. So there are nine techniques in my book, and I explain in the book that it's kind of like a cookbook. You don't have to do every technique in order or anything like that. But the one technique that I do suggest that people start with is the one that's a mindfulness technique so that you can observe that anxiety and see if this is an anxiety that's calling for a nice, breathe, slow down, let it go, learn how to divert your attention type of technique. Or if your anxiety is calling for something that will help you face your fear and laser in and tackle the stressor, obviously different situations will call for different things. And most people don't even realize that they just think, oh, anxiety is bad. I should breathe and let it go. And, and I, I want them to know that it's actually a gift and it can be a real source of energy that not only gives us more productivity, but it can actually also give us fulfillment because we have that anxiety usually when something important is on the line.
0: So you, you talk about how stress or anxiety is a blue light special from mother, Na- the mother nature of energy. They just need to direct that energy. I love your perspective on that. How can we better direct that, that energy?
1: Sure. So there's a lot of different ways that we could do it, but so for example, I know you mentioned, you liked the worry time technique. So I'll, you know, share with that one from the book. One of the things that can happen sometimes with people that have a very active mind and the ability to think ahead about the future, which is actually an executive lobe function, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. But sometimes we can almost get too good at that to the point where we're standing in line at the grocery store and we're mentally getting pinged with everything from, you know, should I refinance my student loans to am I supposed to call my mom back or should I refinance? finance my mortgage and and our mind can just be going a million miles an hour to the point where we're not really connecting with these things and we're not even fully present where we are so what we do in that situation with this technique called worry time is we thank ourselves for the awareness that these issues could probably use some attention but we also stop ourselves from feeling like we have to solve them right here and now in line at the grocery store. And so the happy medium is we have a calendar event. And for some people it's a calendar event that recurs every day for 10 minutes. For some people it's an hour once a week, whatever's best. And then when those things pop up, you just deposit them into the event details and you give them their due attention, their undivided attention, when the time arrives. And then that actually really frees your brain because if you just kind of scold yourself and say, stop worrying, just be present, just be in the moment. Number one, it's negative. It's failing to really appreciate that, you know, a part of you is coming from a good place. And then it's also actually gonna be hard for your brain to really let go of that stuff because it knows it's out there unaddressed. But if you put it down, In a little note for your specific worry time, it lets your brain let go in that moment, but it also doesn't deprive you of the benefit of having thought ahead for a moment.
0: I love it. It's like literally calendaring worry. So if I were to go to my calendar, I'm going to calendar, I'm going to have 15 minutes or whatever it might be. Uh, This is my worry time to worry about all the things that could potentially go wrong or I'm anxious about or I'm stressed about and set aside time for that.
1: Right. And then you're actually going to be more productive at solving those things when you're not trying to do it while you're also juggling the grocery store. And it does free you in the moment to just be where you are and not have to deal with it then and there.
0: It's actually interesting too. Tim Ferriss has a similar technique and this is more, I th- he would think he was more focused in the entrepreneurial sense where he said he would spend time thinking about all the, the, the God awful things that could happen. And for his business for life and kind of like walk through them. And so in a sense, it also would prepare him for when adversity happened. He was prepared. He would say one, okay, this isn't so bad. I was thinking about this worst case or, Hey, I've already thought about this. And it just better equipped him for the unknowns of life and work, if you will.
1: Yes, that actually touches on another technique. And by the way, I love Tim Ferriss too. As a, am kind of an entrepreneur myself, so I definitely love him. And what he's doing there is almost kind of like a zone of control exercise, which is another exercise from the book where we think about just something in our lives that's stressing us out a little bit. And then we break it down into the parts that we can control and the parts that we cannot control. And the parts that we can control, we write down a specific action step that we can take to help control it. So in Tim Ferriss's mind, he was probably thinking, "Will my book, The 4-Hour Workweek be a success, right? And so in the zone of non-control, like, will people ultimately like it? No, but he could test and he did test, will I have a catchy title? And then his action step was to A, B, test that title with Google ads and see which one got the best clicks. And so that way when mother nature is giving you that blue light special of energy, which you know could just feel like general uncomfortable nervousness if you don't know what to do with it, the, the positive spin is that when you feel that kind of burst of nervous energy, if you took the trouble to write out that zone of control action step for yourself, you could say, Okay, well, instead of just sitting here being nervous about it, why don't I go click out my Google AdWords text and why don't I brainstorm five good titles? And that way you don't let that nervous energy go to waste. You use it the way mother nature intended, which is to help you prepare.
0: I I love that you mentioned focusing on what we can control and then what we can't control, we all know it, but how do we get better? At that balance, I struggle with that. I think many people struggle with that, especially if you're a type a and you believe in goal setting. If you work hard, if, if, if you are a high achiever, there's something empowering to say, you know, I can do anything, whatever it may be. I can do anything, but the reality is. It's life is a delicate balance of this is what I can control. And then this is what I can't control. So what advice do you have for everyone who has trouble balancing the two?
1: Yeah, so I I think it's important to actually take the time to put it into a list. And I have some free worksheets on NervousEnergyBook.com. People can get free worksheets. But honestly, this is something you can do with a piece of paper. If you fold it in half down the middle and on the left side, you put the things you can control and the right side, you put the things that you cannot control. And then again, putting those action steps by the things you can control. Now to your point though, Jason, how can we get better at actually following that? Number one, by actually having a tangible physical piece of paper, this is coming back from my yoga teacher days. I was a yoga teacher before I was a psychologist, knowing that when we control our gaze, our physical gaze, what we look at is going to control and affect what we are thinking about. And so, once you've made that tangible list for yourself, if you then point your eyeballs at the stuff that's in the control list, and I even go so far sometimes as to highlight in colors some of the action steps because it will draw your eyes there. And also, having thought in advance about what the action steps are and just laid them out for yourself, it's that much easier in those moments of even kind of skittishness where we're just, our nervous energy is a little over the top, it's so much easier to just grab and focus on those good action steps instead of telling yourself not to think about stuff you can't control. It's like saying, don't think about pink elephants. You just think about it more. But when you have some really good action steps clearly laid out for yourself, so all you have to do is point your eyeballs at them, that will at least help it to be easier to focus on those things. And it may not feel natural right away, but I would tell people not to worry about that. Again, from my yoga teacher days, I would say if you've been slouching for 20 years and then you put your shoulders back, it may not feel natural, but it's still the healthy way for you to do. It's the new habit you want to build. So that's how I would encourage people to try it out and give themselves that support.
0: Well, this idea of, of accepting what you can't control. I think of the ability to let go. I think of people who are religious, those who are spiritual. I even think of AA, this idea of of letting go. Can you talk about what from your perspective as psychologists, the the power of letting go and how we can benefit from that and, and how we can let go better. Cause I think so much of us are struggle with that.
1: Yes. And that's so interesting that you linked it to religiosity, to religion for people who are religious, because studies have shown that even just regardless of the religion, people who are religious, it tends to be a protective factor for them in times of stress. So for people who are not religious, I would encourage you to broaden your concept of religiosity to include meditation and so, to your point, then, Jason, about how can we let things go, mindfulness meditation trains up our executive lobe. It trains up our ability to say, here's what I'm going to point the beams of my attention at like I think of the executive lobe is almost like the headlights on a car and whatever you point it at that's what you're going to illuminate and see and focus on and the the more we do build and I go into this a lot in the book really unpacking what mindfulness is I think it's gotten to be such a buzzword that people don't fully understand it But when we actually practice, and I always tell people, we don't wanna practice at the game. We wanna just kind of in calm low stakes environments, practice some of these techniques where we learn to just control our attention and keep it on one thing versus the other thing. In moments of stress, then when we really need to, we'll actually be better able to harness our energy and keep our attention pointed at where it should be. And again, it's going to be so much easier to do that. If we've made out that little list for ourselves. So specifically what to think and do in our hour of need.
0: So you are right. Mindfulness is a big catch-all and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So. If you could drill down specifically, I'll give you an example of someone is feeling a little bit of worry, a little bit of anxiety. Maybe they're stressed about work. Maybe they're stressed about waiting a medical report. Maybe they're stressed about the sort of -of run-of-the-mill stress or anxiety, which happens. How do you think about mindfulness in that context? And what does that look like? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, what does it look like is such a great word to kind of key in on there. So what I think about with mindfulness there is understanding metacognition, the thoughts about the thoughts and the context of the thoughts and where they come from. And for busy driven people, we can just be flying a million miles an hour to the point where We don't even really fully know all the things that these little pieces connect to. And so another technique in the book is called mind mapping. And what I would encourage that person to do if they said, I don't know, I'm just stressed about work and I've got some medical stuff happening. I don't know. I'm just feeling stressed. I would say, "Okay, well, let's do a mind map. Let's write work. In the middle of this page, piece of paper, draw a circle around it, draw a few spokes out and write the first words that come to mind when you think of work and that person might even think things that don't make sense. They might say, well, I think of money. I think of desire to fit in. I think of a a little fear. And then we say, okay, now let's look at those words and draw some spokes out from those and see what they connect to. And so then when they say, well, when I think of money, I actually think of when I was a little kid and my parents didn't have much money. And that actually connects to that fear bubble over here, right? And so we start literally getting a map and we start seeing that metacognition. And then we understand, okay, my job stress is because maybe I have almost a financial survival complex. And so when I have a hard day at work, there's some little part of me deep inside that's actually stressed about just my my safety, my financial safety. And then that clues us in, like I said, the first technique is a mindfulness technique. It's so important. Then we know, okay, maybe I need to turn to another technique in the book, like thought replacements, which is to repeat to myself, regardless of my job status, I know I can take care of myself. I can count on me. And to repeat that a few times. And that might be the the best anxiety technique, sometimes better than just good old deep breathing or something to really address the heart of the anxiety. We need to understand what it's really about first.
0: So the thought replacement is essentially an affirmation. If I have that right.
1: Ooh, Jason, I'm so glad you said that because I actually share a little bit about this in the book that as a former yoga teacher, I do love affirmations. And when I first learned about thought replacement, that was my first thought too, like, oh, this kind of like affirmations, but they're actually rather there can be overlap but they can also be somewhat different so affirmations can sometimes be aspirational right so like in that job example a person might say something like well my affirmation is i feel strong and secure in my job when in fact maybe they don't right whereas a thought replacement is 100 true and accurate in this moment and part of the exercise is you even give yourself before you settle on a thought replacement You have almost like a deliberate hole poking session where you try to say, is there any scenario where this wouldn't be true? Or how can I really refine this so it feels like an airtight thought replacement? And then you use that airtight thought replacement specifically when you start getting certain negative, you know, what we call maladaptive thought scripts going in your mind. So And in fact, with affirmations, if they're too aspirational, some psychology studies have shown that they can actually make people feel more insecure because there's a part of you deep down that knows I'm actually not strong and secure at my job. And just repeating that over and over isn't even helping you to get strong and secure at your job. And it can feel escapist. So again, I love affirmations, but thought replacements are slightly different, but there's also some overlap. Sorry. I know that was kind of confusing. I
0: love it. So your affirmations have to be practical.
1: At least accurate.
0: At least accurate. So let's talk more about that. You started out as a yoga teacher before getting your, your PhD and becoming a psychologist. So can you talk about how your yoga practice influenced what you do today, how you practice. Um, I, I've heard from PhDs who then go on and get their yoga certification or my, but I rarely do. I talk to people like yourself who started out as yoga teachers and then what I got went on to took out their PhDs and become practicing psychologists.
1: Sure. Jason, that's a, that a question I'd love to talk about. So I, First came to New York City in my early 20s and as we all know it's not cheap to live in New York. <laughs> I was a yoga teacher and I found that the best way for me to pay the bills was less by teaching group classes and more by teaching individual classes. And by definition, sometimes the people who can afford those individual classes are going to be those, you know, kind of high-performing, type-A, stressed-out New Yorkers. And at the same time, though, the fact that they were choosing to spend their disposable time and income on something like yoga lessons, I mean, these were pretty healthy people that were interested in self-improvement, and I found it very inspiring to work with them. So I would make customized programs for each person. So suppose somebody was like, oh, well, I want yoga to help me to find balance. We would do meditations about balance, and we would do postures about balance. And people were just getting great results, and I was loving it they were loving it. And they were also almost attributing a little bit more to me than I knew deep down was really true because they were having these, you know, kind of big spiritual and psychological shifts. And they kind of were almost describing it more to me as opposed to just some of the things we were teaching. And I I wanted to understand it better myself. I wanted to even be able to go deeper and be more helpful. And I also just, you know, knew that the The mental side was super interesting to me, and that's why I then went to Columbia and finished my undergrad. I hadn't finished undergrad even at that time, but I did then go and finish undergrad in psychology and immediately then went on to get a PhD in clinical psychology.
0: So do you ever prescribe yoga?
1: Absolutely. I have a yoga and emotion workshop that's actually, people can view it for free in my Insiders Club. So for your listeners, they can get a free week at the Insiders Club if they want to DM me or anything like that, or we'll put something in the links. I have a free workshop that they can view on it. And the ability certainly of yoga to make us feel a certain way or For us to notice we're feeling a certain way and then use yoga to manage it 100%. The body-mind connection is one of my favorite things.
0: Do you have a go-to pose or uh, flow for when you're having a bad day, when you're running anxious, when you're a little bit stressed?
1: Yeah. So for me, the sun salutation is... Almost like the version of anchoring statements, which I know is another one of the techniques that you liked. And with anchoring statements, we use that one when it's not even like we're having negative thoughts and we need thought replacements. Anchoring statements are for, like, when you're just so stressed that it's almost like you've become nonverbal and you're not having thoughts, you have some pre crafted anchoring statements to just reactivate your ability for language. And I think of the sun salutation as the same thing for me. It's almost like the alphabet. For those of us who do yoga, we just know the sun salutation usually so well that even if you are having a day where you're totally frazzled, if I just get into that flow, sometimes it's going to be quick and joyful and frenetic because I have so much energy and I just need to burn it off. Or sometimes it's going to be a very slow, almost solemn type of a version of it, but it's a total way of just having that body routine that. Kind of like they say, the horse knows the way home. Once you get yourself back into that familiar path, it's very centering.
0: So you mentioned anchoring statements. I do love those. Can you walk us through anchoring statements?
1: Yeah, sure. So with anchoring statements, I, I find that they're really helpful for people that either, I, I used them often in my practice for people that would have panic disorder, but even for people that don't have, you know, panic disorder proper, people who just go through like a complete and total mind blank sometimes that sometimes it's also just like a physical experience of just feeling like they're just kind of freezing up it can become a vicious circle where the more we feel like we're freezing up the more frozen we get because it's kind of an alarming state to be in especially for someone who's usually kind of verbal and able to think on their feet so if you know that this happens to you then what you do is in advance you come up with an anchoring statement that, and it's, it would be so simple, such a simple statement that it would bore you to tears in your normal life. But when you're in that kind of compromised moment where you're just not verbal, it's just what you need to hear. And for some people, it's going to be things like, I've seen my medical doctor. I know I'm physically fine, and I know this will pass in two minutes flat. And they just repeat that over and over. For some people, it's my head is above my shoulders, my shoulders are above my waist, my waist is above my hips, and my hips are above my feet. And they just repeat that to themselves several times. And again, it's so simple and so basic that you wouldn't need it unless you were having kind of a system lock, but it's a nice, simple reset tool for when you're feeling Like the ship is adrift and you need that anchor to anchor you back down.
0: I love it. So those who are high achievers, who struggle with perfectionism, what are some of the pitfalls there?
1: such an interesting question, Jason, because the drive for excellence is not a bad thing, right? I mean, in general, just uh, if we think of perfect as just being Without flaws. And for those of us who are interested in self improvement, by definition, we're almost just kind of interested and curious about like, well, what are my vulnerabilities? What are my areas uh, for improvement? How can I focus on that? And it, there's a certain degree to where that can be very constructive. But then there comes a time when it can be destructive. And in the book, I go into the difference between self discipline and self flagellation. And to me, therein lies the difference between perfectionism versus just a healthy drive for excellence. So for anyone who doesn't know, self-flagellation is something that like in the old days, old monks and priests, they would literally carry like a stick that had some long strings with cut glass and sharp things at the end, and they would throw it over their back, literally hitting themselves with, you know, this hurtful instrument, and they were flagellating themselves that way. And they believed that they could do that to punish themselves and get themselves off of sin. Obviously, that's not a healthy thing to do physically or mentally or spiritually. On the other hand, self-discipline, which is being able to take a calm, honest recognition that, okay, you know what? I didn't perform as well on that one as i wish i did and f- frankly i didn't prepare as much as i should have and if i want if it's really important to me to do better next time here's what i could do i i could choose to allocate one more hour of preparation and and then i can think about whether or not i want to exert the discipline on myself to do that is that a good thing for me is it a worthy goal is it a good use of my time and if it is, then I'll be willing to do it. And high, high functioning, high performing people do share in common with perfectionists that they're both willing and able to be the first person to take that constructive look in the mirror and to, to be honest about what are the areas for improvement. The difference is in the way we respond to it. If you beat yourself up, that self-flagellation of just saying, oh, I'm a loser. I'm so stupid. How could I have done this? I'm, you know, such a F-op or whatever. Then you're in that self-flagellation space and you're not even helping yourself to get closer to your goal. But if you're in the self-discipline space, then you're not in the pitfalls of perfectionism. You're more just in the healthy growing space.
0: Building off of perfectionism, you have these great archetypes in the book. You've got the OCD queen, the scrutinizer, and the grinning and bearing it. Can you briefly walk us through each of the three and touch on the, the problems and opportunities, if you will, for these archetypes?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I I love that you're laughing because the book is supposed to be a little bit funny, right? Like there's a little bit of humor. And as I share in the book too, there's a little bit of myself and every single one of these people. And I think the reason I could connect with these clients and write this book is because I use these techniques on myself as well. So Christina is, I call her the OCD queen, and she is just kind of She's got every folder color coded, everything is organized, everything's on a schedule. And of course, there are, there are many ways where it actually really helps her. She's, she's prepared, she double checks, she thinks ahead, but then the pitfalls are that as she achieves more and more success as she gets promoted and gets relationships and develops a full life, it's not really possible for her to constantly double check everything or always be ultra prepared for everything. And so she needs to learn how to sometimes let go and how to sometimes not feel that everything has to be, quote, you know, perfect. William, the scrutinizer, is basically a worrywart. He's kind of the good old-fashioned worrywart. He's the guy at the grocery store who's saying, I wonder if this produce is really very clean or like he's think- he's got a promotion opportunity, dream job. But he, he says, well, I don't know. How is, you know, every little factor about that city? I'm just not sure. And he hems and haws and worries so much that he almost just gets stuck in inaction. He he can never really step forward and do everything because he's always scrutinizing so much. But again, there's positive sides to this. It's not like he's just going to go willy-nilly, be overly impulsive. But on the other hand, he sometimes needs to just let himself move forward. And then the last person, Greg, gritting and bearing it, is another very interesting type of high-functioning, high-achieving person I've seen a lot of, which is that They come in to my office and they're like, I don't know what happened, but the other day I just had a complete and total anxiety attack. And I'm like, well, why could that be? And they're like, I don't know. I'm fine. Like everything with me is fine. I I really don't know. And and they're serious. They're not lying to me. They're just, they, they smile a lot. They could even be talking about something awful happening, but they're smiling and they need help to get under the hood a little bit to actually get in touch with what their worries are, with what their concerns are, to give themselves permission to go there a little bit.
0: And I I think you, you hit the nail on the head. There's, there's parts of each archetype, I think, in all of us that come up, maybe not to the, the, the extent, but they're there and they surface every once in a while. They do. And so What's, if you could kind of walk through all three, like when, if we do find any of these beginning to surface, what can we do to keep them at bay?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, the first thing I think instead of necessarily trying to keep them at bay, ironically, the first thing we actually want to do is welcome them, right? To recognize that all of this anxiety is actually coming from a good place in ourselves. It's that healthy function, again, of anxiety is to stimulate preparation behaviors. So, for example, with Christina, if she finds herself getting completely obsessed, you know, feeling like she has to wake up in the middle of the night to triple check if all of her presentation notes are color coded just the right way, she might want to give herself a thought replacement in that moment that just says, I have prepared very well, like I always do, and I can handle any minor hiccups. I've prepared very well, like I always do, and I can handle any minor hiccups. But she would also maybe want to say to, her, say to that anxiety, thank you for stimulating me to be prepared. The good news is I have prepared. And I can handle any minor hiccups, you know, et cetera. So we don't want to become at war with ourselves. They, it, I think of the anxiety as almost like a person who's trying to make a little point. And if you keep shushing that person, they feel like they have to keep speaking up louder because they <laughs> think you haven't heard their point. But if you actually just say, okay, you know what, I hear you, and that's a good point. And what we, we've prepared very well, and then going into that little thought replacement. The anxiety is much more able to say, okay, I feel heard. I know my concern has been addressed. Just like, for example, William, the scrutinizer, worry time is a great one for him, right? So he doesn't end up having to kind of yell at himself in the proverbial supermarket if he's thinking of a million different worries. He doesn't want to shout himself down and say, stop that stupid worrying. What's wrong with you? Why are you always worrying? Getting self-critical. He wants to say, okay, great, my active mind is working again, probably thinking of some important things. Thank you, anxiety for those. Those are good points. I'm going to put those into the calendar event for worry time and I'll give them their due attention when they need it. And then with somebody like Greg, you know, grinning and bearing it, Instead of him, and I've seen people do this, get down on themselves and say, yeah, I know, I I just always stuff my feelings down and say that nothing's bothering me until I have these crazy anxiety outbursts. I know it's wrong, I'm so bad. Instead of going about it that way, to just say, you know what? It's actually really great that I'm able to put certain feelings aside and just get things done sometimes. That's a skill and I'm glad I have it. But I also wanna make sure sometimes I take the time to deliberately unpack what has been put aside so I can be sure to address it. And I'm going to take some time and do that now. And then maybe they go through that mind mapping exercise. But again, I think the important thing, I think of it almost like an anorexic who wants to quote, get rid of all their body fat. We have to first let them know body fat is not the enemy. And so with these, you know, people with anxiety, we have, I want to let them know anxiety is also not the enemy. It's a healthy part of yourself. We just want to learn how to harness it for its best use.
0: I love your perspective. So we've, we've we've talked about mindfulness. If we segue to lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, we touched a little on sleep. How do you think about nutrition, exercise and sleep and the role it plays in, in helping us better manage anxiety, better manage nervous energy. And and what do you talk to your clients about in terms Uh, of their lifestyle choices?
1: So important nutrition, exercise and sleep. I mean, those are the foundations of mental health, right? So. I've definitely had it before where I've had a client in my office whose nutrition is obviously so poor or they're just not getting enough exercise and they can't seem to motivate themselves to do it or, frankly, massage. I would put massage into that bucket as well, that just kind of essential body care bucket. And when I say to them, like, well, I really think you should see a nutritionist or I think you need to get a massage or why don't you see a personal trainer? And if they say, Well, I just don't feel I can afford it, I'll tell them, I think it's so important. I would rather see you skip a session with me next week and take that money and apply it, you know, to the nutrition or the exercise or the sleep because Those things not only like actually control and regulate your hormones and your body, they're kind of the the canvas upon which your thoughts and feelings are painted, but they also in a sense are the paint, the body-mind experience. I just think is so entwined. So if anyone is, you know, wondering about the role of nutrition and exercise and sleep, again, I just I cannot say enough good things about. Frankly, sometimes I'll even get 12 hours of sleep and like, wow. not not often, but about, my I, hero. yeah, truly like about once a quarter, I find I need to have a good 12 hours sleep. And I just think paying attention to those cycles about what really nourishes you. And I actually have written some blogs about mindful drinking as well for alcohol, because to me, again, that's just part of the body-mind connection. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, we just try to limit alcohol. Okay, well, that's fine. But there are also some really salubrious effects, right, of, of that glass of wine and, and of the way it can make some of us feel. So I'm definitely very much into the physical self and how that affects our, our soul and our psyche.
0: How do you define, I think, the concept of mindful drinking is interesting and I want to touch on nutrition a bit more as well. So like, how do you think about mindful drinking? Is it the occasional glass of red wine at dinner or with friends or the beer or the margarita or whatever it may be? How, how do you think about mindful drinking? Cause I think something, something I heard one time about alcohol is you've got on one end, the people who drink way too much all the time and, and her, her alcoholics, another end, you have people who don't drink at all and then you've got the messy middle which is the majority of everyone the messy middle where they're kind of not quite sure how to balance it so let's spend time on that cuz i think how do you define mindful drinking how should we think about that
1: yeah so i i think that the quantity and frequency of what's the sweet spot the right healthy spot for each person is going to be different you know there's so many factors to consider like age culture even just phase of life so i don't really go into a one size fits all in terms of like the quote correct frequency or quantity but as far as what mindful drinking is a few thoughts i do have is that i i would practice drinking a glass of wine or whatever your favorite beverage is with another person or two deliberately doing mindful drinking where you decide we're gonna have this one drink together over the course of 15 minutes. And we're going to talk about what it feels like as we feel it hitting us. We're gonna talk about, I'm having a craving right now that if this feels good, maybe another one will make me feel twice as good. And just verbalizing some of the thoughts and feelings and even body buzz sensations that we have as we drink. So just mindfully, experiencing and talking about what we feel as we drink and then to your point about finding the right sweet spot for each person one of the ways i found is helpful for people and i say this is a manhattanite right like the city runs on drinks and cocktail culture and so many great things even my book ta- my book deal actually came from a happy hour situation but what i find is helpful is for each of us to understand What is, I I call it the magic number. What's the actual right number of drinks that is truly maximally pleasurable for you? So for me, it's three. And after three drinks, frankly, there's a part of me that would be kind of buzzed and think, well, maybe four would be even better, right? But having learned and practiced many times and having gotten clear with myself that three, I don't think of it as a limit, I think of it as remembering this is my true pleasure zone. This is really the zone that actually brings me the most pleasure and conceptualizing it that way is helpful for me. And I do uh, me as well as many clients I've worked with. And I do have a blog that has like a lot more about how to find your drinking sweet spot. And I'll share a link with you if you want to share it in the show notes. And I'm happy to come and talk about it anytime.
0: I I love what you just said. And I also think it's interesting. You know, you, you said happy hour. And so I think setting context matters. Am I out having a drink with friends celebrating? Am I having a drink, a dinner with my family, watching a sunset, or am I having a drink by myself, staring into the abyss in a dark room? I I think, and look, sometimes having a drink helps when you are down and out. But I, I do think setting and context also matter. As we talk about frequency and quantity, is that one hundred percent?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, the reason why you're drinking—if you're drinking to escape something—and the context around it, I, I think is, is so important. That I just—I've never been one to just really reduce it to just a, a simple number, because even each person's physiology is different. For some people, three drinks would, you know, be way too many, right? So I think we've got to understand each one of us is in, is an individual.
0: So. In terms of looking for a therapist or psychologist, I have always thought, you know what, this is such, it's so critical for people to find the right help. It is a profession where having someone who's who's good versus someone who's average can make a huge difference in terms of, in terms of real personal growth, being in the space. What advice do you have for someone listening who's shopping around for a psychologist, for a therapist? What what do they, what they should they look for? I don't think reviews on ZocDoc, I'm like, maybe they're helpful. Maybe they're not. But like, what are the questions you should ask? What should you look for when you're shopping around for help?
1: That's another great question, Jason. So I actually have a whole chapter um, on this in my book because... I actually share in the book as well, my own journey of functioning, what psychologists call functioning, that in my own life, I, at one point was kind of a lower functioning person. I, as a teenager, I had some kind of crazy family dynamics. And at that point in my life, just most any regular, somewhat normal therapist was actually a a helpful thing for me to just go see somebody once a week that was just going to reliably be there and be normal for me was actually extremely helpful. But then as my functioning increased and I kind of learned a lot of information about self-help and I became a lot more self-reliant, it was harder for me to find a therapist that could really actually teach me something new and stimulate me to grow further. I think of it almost like if you are super out of shape, like most, any personal trainer is going to be helpful, but if you're like in really good shape, sometimes any old trainer may not be able to actually enrich what you're already doing in your own routine. So I I would say that it's good for people to shop around, as you said, maybe Go see, say, three different therapists and see which one seems helpful for you. Also ask the therapist, how many people have you seen before who are kind of like me? What types of results happened for them? And fair enough, a therapist could say like, well, I don't know you very well yet and every person's different. But I personally feel like they should be able to have some idea of who you are and what you're dealing with and and give some sense of like, yeah, I work with people in situations like yours all the time or, oh, this is, you know, very rare. I also like to ask therapists, you know, what's on their bookshelf and say, if you therapists were going to suggest any self-help books for me that I could read between sessions, given what you know about me in this kind of brief maybe initial session when you're in that shopping phase, what would you suggest? And then the types of books that they suggest are also going to give you a good indicator, you know, of their thinking around you. You can also ask them, do you give homework? Because one of the big complaints I get, Jason, from people who come to my office because their previous therapist wasn't a good fit, Is they say, you know, my previous therapist, it was like I would show up and they wouldn't even hardly remember what I had said the week before. And I would have to spend the first 10 minutes like both of us trying to recenter ourselves and remember where we were. Whereas at my office and many other good therapists office, I offer training programs for therapists as well. They should be greeting you with a pad of paper. So they know what happened last week and they can say, okay, did you try that breathing exercise before that meeting? How did it go? Or how did that limit setting conversation with your spouse turn out? You know, so they're, they're, they're tracking you and they're keeping up with you. And I would ask the therapist, do you give homework? And is it my responsibility to remember the homework and talk about it at the next session? Or is that something you do? And if the therapist kind of bristles and says, well, it's kind of your job, I need you to take ownership and responsibility. I would, you know, kind of personally not be so into that myself. Like I would say, well, I'm willing to take ownership and responsibility, but I'm, I'm also just wondering like how much ownership and responsibility you take to kind of nudge me and track me and keep me focused on this. If, if that is something that you're looking for in a therapist, which Again, for me being goal-oriented and, and many of the people who have nervous energy, in a good way, we can be goal-oriented. We, we have a healthy sense of discomfort with where we are and there's somewhere we want to get and, and we want someone to really help us get there. So I just think sometimes the more questions you ask in those initial phases, the better. One more little quick tip is ask them to explain what the letters behind their name means. I've noticed a lot of therapists and coaches, they like to pile all these little letters and acronyms and everything behind their name. And I would ask them, so what do those letters mean? How long was that a certification program? How many weeks or months or years was that? You can say, I just don't know your space and I'd really like to learn the details about what that is. And if the person again seems dodgy or defensive, that's obviously not good. If they seem like welcoming and they really want to have that conversation, that's a good sign.
0: Very sage advice. In closing, yeah, I'm curious, what was the most surprising, jaw-dropping research you came across while working on the book where you just said, wow, I can't believe that.
1: Yes. The most surprising thing for me was actually the lack of research on what psychologists call high functioning people, which is kind of what you and I have been talking about here as far as just this type of go getter, high achieving person that doesn't necessarily need or want to be in therapy forever, even though I say that for me as somebody who who has been in therapy and I love it because it just always keeps me growing. But, you know, just the idea of people who are goal-oriented, who are basically well, and they're going to therapy to just help them to enhance their wellness. I was more surprised that there was such a lack of research to the point where I had to even ask several mentors in my life, am I missing something? Am I not looking in the right place? And they said, no. They said, because there's so much funding around pathology. That's where all of the research money tends to go. And there's not as much research around just people who are basically well, and they wanna get even better, even stronger.
0: Fascinating. Chloe, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, it was great to be with you, Jason. And I would just say, if anybody wants to learn more, they can come to nervousenergybook.com, got free goodies and would welcome them into my community.